0: Duke fans, welcome to episode 381 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I am your host this week. I'm Jason Evans. If I sound a little different than usual, I'm a little congested. You can probably guess the reason why. Yes, I have COVID. It's not bad. It's not a big deal. Um, but boy, yesterday was a terrible day for me because I found out I have COVID and the Blue Devils lost to Florida State. We're going to be recapping all of that. Also looking ahead to the game this weekend against the Syracuse Orangemen. And to do that with me is Donald Wine. Sam Klein can't make it today, Donald. So it's just you and me carrying the weight, huh, buddy?
1: Yeah, and, and uh, first off, hopefully you're doing okay. You sound a little bit better than you did the other day when we were talking. Uh, but uh, th- it, I know this is just something that's we have to deal with it. So uh, I'm glad that you are, uh, you're looking okay. I know the listeners can't see that, but you, you don't look worse for wear. So uh, you got that going for you.
0: Thank you very much, sir. Yes, thank you. Uh, it's kind of you to say I look good. I, I don't think I really do, but it's fine. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's get to the recap of the game last night against Florida State uh, that the Blue Devils lost. Um, Donald, we start the way we always do. Let's let's go ahead and give our headlines, and I'll let you go first.
1: Yeah, mine's very simple. Frustrating night in Tallahassee as, as Seminoles outlast Duke in overtime.
0: Uh, so I had terrible in tally. Uh, Duke forgets who it is in Florida State loss. Uh, And I think that was a lot of the story of the game. Uh, We we will get to the problems, and there are many of them. (laughs) But we always try to put a positive spin on things, so we will begin with the good. Donald, give me your first good thing that you saw in this basketball contest.
1: Okay, well, let's start in the first half, because I think in the first half we shot very well from three, which is something that we haven't done in uh, previous games, at least to this point. I think coming out and, and having those threes was able to stretch out Florida State's defense quite a bit. And I know it, it led to some other issues that we had on the inside. But I think getting the confidence from our guards was something we talked about in the preview. And I'm glad that we were able to get that early in the form of threes.
0: Uh, yeah, we did shoot well from three in the first half. It didn't carry over really to the second half. Um, we weren't terrible from three in the second half, but not great. Um, but, uh, but my first good thing I wanted to point out uh, with someone that Coach K talked about in the uh, in the postgame press conference. Both Donald and I were on the postgame press conference that Coach K had and, and several players had, um, and we heard Coach K praising Jeremy Roach. I thought Jeremy Roach ran the offense really effectively after Trevor Keels went down. Uh, Jeremy only had six points in this game, but he had six assists and just one turnover on a day when Duke was really struggling to hold on to the ball. Coach K said he thought that Roach had played one of his best games at Duke um, he praised him for being really strong with the ball. And, and I thought, you know, the only way Duke got back in this contest, and, and Duke was out of this game for, for much of the second half, the way we got back was by sharing the ball, by finding better shots. And Jeremy Roach was a huge key in that.
1: Yeah, and I thought he did very well down the stretch in and in overtime too, because again, when a player goes down, no matter what player it is, right, if it's good, bad, important, semi-important or whatever, You have to adjust and to do that when you see your teammate fall is very hard to do. Um, I've had to have that have to do that in, in sports and everyone who's done it does not like to go through it. We always say, yeah, next man up, but that's not something that you want to do. Jeremy Roach after, you know, being on the bench and accepting his new role of coming off of the bench is now thrust back into that role where he has to not only be on the floor, but command and lead the offense. And I thought he did that very well under duress and, and, Uh, you know, Florida state had to adjust to, to find him, but Jeremy watch was able to find guys. Like you said, six assists on the night. I thought he was very well at distributing the basketball, which we did not do well as a team, but I think him focusing on that was able to get guys open like Paul Bencaro or otherwise, you know, we like to talk about the hockey assists. He also had a couple of those where he was able to swing it to a guy who was able to find the open man because his passing lane was that wasn't there. He was able to find the passing lane that was open, and that led to shots too.
0: Yeah, and and as long as we're praising individuals in the good section, I'm going to talk about Paulo Mancaro for a second. Um, And we will will get to how he played and how Duke used him in much of the rest of the game. But in the final five minutes, Paulo took over, and it was really something to behold. Uh, So Duke had seven possessions in the final five minutes. Paulo scored or assisted on six of those seven possessions. And and part of it was, by the way, he had he had seven assists. He almost had a triple double in this game. I mean, that's how great Paulo was—a
1: sneaky triple double.
0: Which which is crazy considering that there was a 15 minute stretch of the second half where he did nothing, nothing. But I'm, again, I'm going to get to that later on. <laughs> I want to talk about when he was doing something because he was really great. And by the way, like I said, we were on the post game, the two of us, and you asked Paulo specifically about the final couple minutes when. The Florida State defense was really focusing on him, and he found a way to get his teammates involved, specifically Mark Williams. Uh, I want to play now that that question that you had for Paulo uh, about finding Mark Williams and Paulo's response.
1: Hey, Paulo, in that last five minutes, you took over on the offensive end, but it wasn't just your scoring. You were also finding Mark Williams quite a bit inside what did you see in that last few minutes that presented that opportunity for you to also get Mark Williams involved in the game? Yeah, um, just, you know, every time I had the ball, all the rest, other four defenders were all kind of looking at me and kind of playing, you know, off their man, um, loading up. So uh, the Mark's man was up the lane, um, kind of just paying attention, focusing on, you know, making sure I can't drive. Um, so. Mark, you know, he's a big target, so he was an easy, easy um, pass over the top, and I know I can throw it up there, and Mark's going to go get it.
0: Donald, I'll tell you, the reason I really like that question, um, and the reason I like what Paulo had to say was he he identified the fact that the Florida State defense was gravitating toward him, um, and, Mm -hmm. and that he was able to use that and take advantage of that and find Mark Williams for those easy dumps. And, and it's just so important for us to hear that these guys are, are figuring out ways of taking advantage of what the, what the other team is, is, is presenting them with.
1: Yeah, and honestly, this is a foreshadowing for what we're going to see on Saturday against Syracuse. But when, our, when, when guys are coming at your best player, to, him, to be able to find the open man wherever they are on the floor is important. And I thought it was very interesting that Florida State was sending their big men at Paulo Banquero. And sending their big man at Paul Ben Carroll left one guy open, Mark Williams, and a lot of over the top where he either was able to alley oop, dunk, grab it and dunk it, or come down with it and then go back up strong for a dunk. I thought was very, very key. It Again, like you said, it kept other guys involved and it kept Florida State on their toes in the last five minutes of, the, of, the, of regulation where well, we went on a 12 4 run, as you said, mainly engineered by Paulo to get back into the game and force overtime. So, and, and really at the end of the game, We had a chance to win it. We had a chance to have a defensive stop and win it. (laughs) We had the lead in
0: the final final minute in both overtime and regulation. In (laughs) both
1: overtimes. Yeah, both overtime and regulation and was not able to just close it out, which we'll talk about that. But I think, honestly, Paulo not relying on just the scoring was very important because when someone takes over, we always talk about the scoring part he was also able to get guys involved in the game again, namely Mark Williams, who was just sitting there, you know, ready to catch balls at a certain point. That is what you need to see from your best player is not just to uh, hero ball is, is a bad way of describing it, but ISO allows him to create and create doesn't necessarily just mean score.
0: Yeah. So I've got one more thing I want to touch on in the good. And, and that is Duke being creative and finding a way to give ourselves a chance. I'm talking specifically about the zone defense. Uh, there's a reality, which is that unless you are, unless you truly have unbridled optimism and never think things are going bad, there was in the final seven or so minutes of this game, uh, you know, about seven minutes out or so, I, I thought Duke was going to lose. I, I didn't think we were going to find a way to get back into this contest. We we were being outplayed by Florida State. Uh, in, in pretty much every phase of the game. And it was frankly miraculous that Duke was as close as they were. And and then Duke went zone. And Coach K in the postgame said that they, we did it because we wanted to give ourselves a little bit of a rest on defense, that the team was feeling a little bit tired. And Coach K wanted to change things up and change the momentum, perhaps slow them down and change the momentum of the game a little bit. And it, wow, it it really worked. Um, and I, I especially think it's going to be interesting to see whether we play a little more zone, when, when Trevor Keels is out. Now, Look, we don't. as we record this, we don't know the situation with Trevor Keels. And I'm, I'm going you know, sideways here for a brief moment. Obviously losing Trevor Keels was a terrible blow to the team. I hope it is not a long-term thing. Coach K said it is a calf, um, not a knee, not an ankle. Uh, knees and ankles are things that can take you out for a long period of time. There are certain types of calf injuries They can be really long-term, but for the most part, muscular injuries like that tend to heal a little bit quicker. I don't know if we're going to have Trevor Keels for Syracuse. I think there's, you know, just based on what I saw and what we've heard, probably a good chance that we have him at least back next week. But going back to where I was talking originally, Duke went zone when Trevor Keels went down. And I think that's partially because Trevor is a great man-to-man defender. I mean, really great at, at matching up on his man. Um, whereas Jeremy Roach, who replaced him, may be a little better in a zone situation. Um, I thought Duke played excellent zone defense. And, and Donald, I don't know if you want to get into the discussion of it. You know, it's sort of interesting that Duke went zone. Florida State was utterly flummoxed, couldn't score. And then the final possession of the game, I think because we wanted to trick them a little bit, we, we went back to the man-to-man. And they scored. It was a really difficult shot. Full credit to Raquan Evans. That's a hell of a difficult shot he made. But, but this Duke team showed they can play good zone defense, and that could be an important thing to have in our bag you know, down the line. And, and again, the fact that the Coach K and this team was creative and figured out a way to give themselves a chance in a game when, frankly, most people thought they had no chance is a real testament to them.
1: Yeah, and Wendell Moore was the other player, on the press conference along with Paul uh, I We didn't get a chance to get his audio, but he, he had a question that basically directed right at the at the zone and said, you know, I asked him, is this something that they kind of have in their back pocket and, you know, something that they're able to rely on down the stretch or was this just something that they went to when Keels went down? And he said, no, this is something that they have in their back pocket. They, they don't mind using it and they're able to do it uh, from time to time. But I will say, Jason, about the zone and just those last seven minutes when keels went down, you mentioned that at that point, a lot of people, you know, including yourself, were probably saying, well, this game is done. We don't have an answer for this. I want to credit the team for, you know, playing hard to the end. They, they had again, they had a chance to win it. They were ahead at the last minute of, of, of regulation, ahead in the last minute of overtime. Every single time it looked like they were out, someone would engineer a run and they were able to catch up and briefly take the lead. That Evan shot to force overtime, I think I was talking with you about it last night. He he went up over Paul Bancaro and Mark Williams. Mark Williams' hand was probably 13 feet in the air, and the ball went 14 feet. If that if that's a normal shot, Mark Williams is slamming that into the nether regions, and we walk out of there with a victory. It just so happens that the ball went just over his grasp, bounced at the right angle, and and was an incredibly good shot to force overtime. So... I don't, I don't fault this team for how they played in terms of effort. They gave everything they had. when, Again, when a guy goes down, it's hard to respond the way they did. And I credit them for being, being able to respond with a little bit of gusto to try and force over time and really have two shots to win that basketball game.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I think this is the place where we should probably get into the bad a little bit. And Donald, I'll come to you first. Uh, what, 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 what's your lead item? What's the most important thing you want to talk about in terms of what went wrong for Duke to result in this loss?
1: Jason, uh, I'm going to go to this one, and I, I'm pretty sure you'll have uh, frustrations over this as well uh, because it's your favorite stat, uh, field goals attempted. I knew it. And yeah. Duke had 55, which is you know a fair amount. Florida State had 73. So they had 18 more field goal attempts on the game. Remember, we only lost by one. Why was this discrepancy in place? Two things, offensive rebounds and turnovers. I'll go with offensive rebounding because there was points where Florida State got three or four or even five chances on a possession at a basket. At a certain point, your guys just get tired. But it's about positioning. They did not have great positioning on some of these rebounds because Florida State, it wasn't like Florida State was jumping 16 feet in the air to grab them over Mark Williams and Paulo Bancaro and other guys. They just had better footwork. They had better positioning, and they were able to get, again, second, third, fourth, fifth chances at the basket. And At a certain point, they're just going to go in. There was one possession I remember where they probably got five offensive rebounds on one possession and then finally got the shot and the foul, and they were able to go to the free throw line for a chance at a three-point play. Those are so frustrating as a fan. I know they're frustrating as a player, but they're also just kicks in the gut. Because after a possession where you're like, hey, we've played great defense, we've gotten the jack-up stupid shots, they still got points out of it. And I think that is where those little things are what cost you basketball games. Again, they attempted 18 more free uh, field goals than we did, and we only lost by one. Imagine if we cut that in half. That means that there's some of those baskets that aren't going in, and we're walking out there with an easy win.
0: So – Uh, You're going to find this very interesting. I kind of disagree with you. And I'm going to explain. Uh, Everyone's going to talk about their offensive rebounding. I don't think that was the biggest factor. I think that um, a a lot of those came on just a couple of possessions. On the first and third possessions of the second half, they had four and then five offensive rebounds. That's nine offensive rebounds on two possessions. That skews the stats in a really big way. Um, I'm not saying they didn't kill us on the boards on the offensive rebounding. They they did, but I'm not sure that was as big a factor as the turnovers. And and allow me to explain it this way. They only outscored us 12-8 to on second-point chances. That, to me, is not why we lost. We we lost because of the turnovers. Because when you get, like like I said, they had nine offensive rebounds on two possessions. But that's only two Mm -hmm. possessions. With turnovers, there's no you don't get multiple turnovers on a possession the way you can with an offensive rebound. You know, it's a, once you turn the ball over, the possession's done.
1: (laughs) We definitely tried. We definitely tried on an inbound pass. We, we we gave it to him, got it right back and almost gave it right back to him.
0: (laughs) I know. I know. Joey Baker. Yes. Uh, No, but, but uh, they, they beat us in the turnover margin 15 to five. That's 10 extra possessions. The Florida state got, Uh, like you said, they took 18 more shots than us and a lot of those were because of the multiple offensive rebounds on one, on one possession, but uh, even if you take out those multiple offensive rebounds, the turnovers to me are why Florida State got so, so many more shots than Duke. And, and, and as a result, Florida State outscores Duke on points off turnover by seven, by 14 to seven, they, they beat us on points off turnover. So I think that's a bigger factor than second chance points, and I want to point something out. Uh, turnovers are such a key mark of whether this Duke team is is really executing properly. Um, On the season, the number to watch out for is 12. If Duke commits more than 12 turnovers, they are one and two. And and the one game they won where they committed more than 12 turnovers was South Carolina State. It was a crazy game. Duke won it by like almost 40. We were up 30 points at halftime. I don't think the same kind of attention was being paid to the way the game was being played in that contest. That's you know, no offense to South Carolina State, but that wasn't a real contest for Duke. So in, in games against teams where it was legitimately, you know the outcome was somewhat in doubt. Duke committed 15 turnovers against Florida State, 17 turnovers against Miami. In games where Duke commits 12 turnovers or less, we are 13 and one. The only time we committed less than 12 turnovers and lost was the game against Ohio State. Duke has been, if Duke takes care of the ball, Duke wins. It is as simple as that. And and I think to me, that's the biggest problem that Duke had in this game was that we didn't take care of the ball, not those rebounds. And again, the rebounds were bad, but the turnovers were bigger.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's a fair shot. Like I said, I think those are the two, in my mind, were two of the biggest determining factors, but I'll even dive a little further. We didn't take the ball away from them either. You mentioned they only had five. We only had caused five turnovers, two steals, which is second lowest of the season. We I guess tied with the Miami game of only having two steals in a team that normally averages 10 steals. Remember our momentum. They've talked about this all year. Our momentum comes through our transition. It comes from taking the ball away on defense and transitioning into offense where we can get easy points or have it where the other team is flustered and setting up their defense so they're not set it goes into that last play, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. The fact is we look panic in our half court offense at times in the second half, because we did not have that momentum. We did not have that flow. We did not have that energy. We didn't have the momentum of grabbing the ball from them and going down and stuffing it down their throat, which we love doing the teams. So I think that all contributed. I, I think you're right. And also, again, there was no transitional getting, you know, getting a rebound and going out and running quickly and setting up a quick offense where the other team doesn't have time to adjust. So those were little things that made this game so frustrating because credits to Florida state, they did a lot of things very well, but also for us, it, it coincided with us not doing the things that got us here taking, you know, we didn't take care of the basketball. We didn't on the other side, we didn't do much on defense to take the ball away from them or to limit the number of shots that they were able to have on possessions. And those are little things that, again, you look at those categories that we've just talked about, all of them are skewed in favor of Florida State, and Florida State only won by one. I stress that. We're like, not, we not in a situation of burn it all down and start over. We're in a situation of this was such a frustrating game because all these categories, if we just lopped one or two things off of the top, we're walking out of Tallahassee with a victory. That's what's so frustrating about it.
0: Yeah. And, and by the way, I mean, like, I don't feel like we deserve to win <laughs> as close as close. As yeah, the we deserve was, to win.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah they, they, they outplayed us. I mean, one of the things I had in the bad, and I was going to wait a little bit to get to this because it's not really bad, but I wanted to give full credit to, to Florida State. They played inspired basketball. They hustled. They fought. They were gutsy. Um, Coach K said in the postgame, it was just two teams playing their hearts out. And he said they knocked us back. And I want to I want to note for people. That's the first time all year that he's, he's used those words, they knocked us back. And last year, like every press conference was Coach K saying they knocked us back. Um, so again, full credit to Florida State for playing that way. Coach K said it was the most physical game we played all year. And, and I talked about the fact that Florida State was gutsy. Caleb Mills, I, I, I wanna recognize this guy. He's 0 for four from three in regulation. Hadn't hit a three-pointer the entire regulation. Comes out in overtime. First possession, immediately, takes a three, buries it. And then in the final seconds, with Florida State down, he took another three and buried it. This guy's 0 for 4 in regulation from three-point range, hits 2 for 2 in overtime, one at the beginning and one at the end. And, uh, you know, we talked about Raekwon Evans' shot to tie the game. John Butler had far and away the best game of his career. You know, he scored more points. I hate it
1: hearing his name. Yeah. I hate it hearing John Butler's name, and we heard it way too many times last night. He,
0: he scored more points and took more shots in this game than any game in his, in his career. In fact, he had more shots and more points in this game than his previous four games combined. I mean, think about that. You take what he's done the previous four games, and he was better than that in this one game. And I'm not even mentioning the, the block shot he had at the end on Wendell Moore. Uh, So, uh, again, I want to give absolute full credit to Florida State for playing super hard, and they deserved to win. uh, Again, the fact that Duke was in it, the fact that Duke had leads late, the fact that we were in position to to win this game is is a miracle considering how well Florida State played.
1: Jason, I think we've reached the portion of the bad where we have to talk about, I think, two two important things that stood out from this game. And I'm going to let you pick which one we talk about it is whether we went 15 minutes in, in the second half without Paulo attempting a shot or the final play of regulation where with a timeout in hand, Wendell Moore kind of goes the length of the floor uh, and it, it attempts a shot uh, that was blocked. So I leave it to you. Which one do you want to discuss first? Because you know, we got we to touch on both.
0: Yeah, so I tell you what, let me, let me start with the Paulo stuff because uh, without that, I don't think, the, I don't think Wendell Moore's uh, you know, attempt at the end matters. Uh, It it doesn't happen. Duke did an incredibly poor job of when we were in our half court offense, we just didn't execute well at all. Um, In the first nine minutes of the second half, Duke was one of 12 from the field. And honestly, as I look back on it, there weren't a lot of good shots in there. Like it wasn't like, oh, that was the, you know, oh, that was a good possession. We worked and got the right shot and we just didn't make it. It was a lot of guys taking shots. I was like, you know, as soon as he took it, I was like, that's just not a good shot. And our inability to, to find Paula Bancaro, uh, whether it's in the post or on the perimeter, was a huge deciding factor in this game. I, I I kind of can't believe that that we went 15 minutes without him taking a shot. It's 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 unbelievable. And and when you saw the way he took over in the final five minutes, it's it's unconscionable that that, that happened. And, you know we're not going to play the sound i asked coach k <laughs> in the post game press conference yes you did yeah i asked coach k i was like hey what happened to, why didn't paulo get a shot for 15 minutes in the second half and coach k's answer to me was he said i've coached 1500 games in my career i think i know when our best player isn't getting touches which is <laughs> i could tell he was kind of pissed off at me for asking the question he did not like my question but he didn't really answer it i'm not sure there is an answer for why Paulo didn't. I, I think Duke should have tried to um, maybe bring him out to the perimeter a little bit more. I know part of the answer was Florida State um, was playing very good, very physical defense on him. And, and I'm gonna get to that in a minute. When we get done with these shots, I wanna talk about um, the physicality of the game. Uh, but but uh, Duke Duke needs to learn from this. We cannot go 15, 15, it's like unbelievable. I'm saying the words and I'm not even, we cannot go 15 minutes with our, our our future top lottery pick, arguably the best player in the country, not getting any shots. And it's not like it was because they were double and triple teaming him and he was distributing the balls to other guys. Paul didn't have any assists during that time either. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it, it was it was inc- it was really frustrating to watch. And as it was going longer and longer, I kept on thinking, well, they've got to just get to a possession where they just go, you know what? We- no one else. It's got to be Paula. And and we never did until five minutes were left, and we were down nine points, and, and we were desperate. Uh, and, and the results were incredible, uh, which, which makes the previous 15 minutes all the more frustrating.
1: Yeah. Honestly, I think in the first like few minutes of the second half, Paula was off the ball. He didn't have the ball on the perimeter, as you mentioned, that he did in the last five minutes, where he would either come up with the ball or receive the ball very early on and be able to create from the wing or from the top of the key. A lot of times he was going down into the post and because a lot of times he's very effective, he's very effective there. But at the same time, we were not effective in getting the ball into the post. We weren't all game. There was a lot of times where we just could not feed the post, except if, you know, Paula was having the ball or Wendell had the ball and was able to get over the defense. Because as we talked about Florida state is a very tall team. They had, you know, three or four, seven footers out there at times. So, The problem was we weren't able to get him the ball. And at a certain point we just kept working around the perimeter and we weren't able to put Paulo in a position where he could receive one of those passes and then go to create. I think the only shot attempt technically that he had in the first 15 minutes of the second half, he was fouled. So it doesn't count as a shot attempt. And he went to the free throw line, but he has to be more involved in the offense. And if something's not working, then they need to identify that and go, Hey, we're not getting the ball to you on the post, come out to the wing so I can give you the ball. And then you can create from there. Because I think a lot of times we were not able to do that. And Paulo was able to, to score from anywhere on the floor. So it, you're right. It is kind of unconscionable that we were not able to find the best scorer on the floor. So, and
0: then, uh, you know, we can next transition to the final play. I, I'll be honest with you. I didn't, in my notes, you know, I, I, I sort everything. I put stuff in the good, I put stuff in the bad. You know, I have notes of, of what I want to talk about. We don't do this all like <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I didn't have the final play in, in my quote unquote bad section. Uh, I, I, it, it was what it was. Um, I would have preferred that we make a pass on that final play. What happened was Wendell, Wendell got the ball on, on, you know, in the backcourt and, and then never gave it up. Um, yes, the clock was counting down, but there was 12 seconds left. And I think there was probably time for us to make at least one pass. I would have liked for Paulo to touch the ball, no question about that. But I don't have a huge problem with Wendell doing what he did. And Coach K in the post-game press conference said, he was fine with Wendell or Paulo taking taking the ball on that final possession. It was pretty clear he wanted it to be one of those two guys. And I don't know how you can say it should be anyone but one of those two guys. Um, You know, other than them creating for someone else, but they should be the initiators. Uh, Wendell has, has struggled of late. And, and I don't, you know, I, di- I didn't love him, you know, like I said, not passing the ball. I don't love him taking the ball against a guy who's seven feet tall and really long. Uh, you know, Wendell, I think, is used to playing against guys who are smaller than him. And this game, we talked in the, pre- in the pregame, uh, you know, in the, in the preview about how big Florida State's the biggest team in the country. And we talked about that in our preview. And, and you know, Wendell had to adjust to the fact that he was being guarded at times by guys who were a half foot taller than him. And that was the case in this last possession. And, and it, you know, it resulted in his shot getting blocked, but I don't have a huge problem with him trying to create that. And Coach K said, our guys are told in those situations, go downhill, go toward the basket. Maybe you make a basket, maybe you get fouled, but you give yourself more chances than taking a jumper. Um, and so I think Wendell was doing the right thing. And, and the reality is, and Don, I'll let you jump in, Duke has now lost two games on last possession kind of plays. Two games where, where there were moments in the final minute. I'm not even talking about the overtime, but there are moments in the final minute where, where Duke was favored, like a decisive favorite to win the game. We had the lead and it looked like we were you know probably going to win. And, and we lost to Miami and we lost to Florida State on some late game heroics by those teams. Uh, you know th- These are toss-up kind of games, 50-50 kind of games. And... I would rather take those 50-50 losses now versus later in the season. So I'm, I don't like it. I wish it didn't happen, but I can live with it.
1: Yeah. I think when it comes to the final play, it's more indicative of my concern about end of half slash game slash overtime execution. Because if you remember, we had a chance to, you know, get a basket at the end of the first half and, it turned into a steal. We had a very terrible possession and it ended up with Florida state stealing. And they actually, you know, they hit the basket, but it was after the, after the buzzer sounded, uh, they hit the long, you know, half court shot. And so if, if it's a split second earlier, that
0: was three quarter court, man, <laughs> that was a long yeah, shot. If
1: it was a split second earlier, that's three plus points, right? At the end of the game, we didn't really have a play except throw it long and hope that they call the foul, uh, which I mean, to be honest, Wendell did get just murdered in that last play of regulation then in overtime, we have the play where, you know, yes, there was an option for him to shoot, but there was also Mark Williams underneath who had been catching lobs all game and he would have been open. He was actually open on that play. So I-, I think for me, it's more indicative of just the end of half execution and how poor it has been in-, in the last few games. Again, we talked about it against Miami. We talked about it against NC State at the end of the first half. They had a play that got botched as well. They have to work on that execution because, again, we've had some of these 50-50 games. And end-of-game execution is key because, yes, I'll take these losses in, in January, but I also don't want them to relieve this in March or April because I want them to learn from this and be able to execute better next time.
0: So my last bad thing is going to be fouls. Coming into this game, Duke was the 16th best team in the country at committing fouls. We only committed 13.8 fouls per game. That's, that's an amazing number. Uh, in this game, we were whistled for 19 fouls, six more than our average. And I know it was an overtime game and that adds five minutes, you know, but this was still a bit of an outlier in terms of Duke's fouls committed. Florida State, as a result of that, made more free throws, 20 free throws made than Duke attempted, we only attempted 18. Um, that, that is something that hasn't even come close to happening you know, at all this year. Again, they made more than we attempted from the free throw line. And that leads me to the refs. And I want to be really clear. I am not blaming the officials for this loss. Duke needs to figure out how the game is being called and adjust to it. But I can still call out the refs for doing a poor job. Florida State was incredibly physical. The refs allowed them to do as they wished, especially on defense. If you have the game on tape, go back and watch some of the second half see how they leaned on Paulo, how they held him to prevent him from getting post position. Duke had trouble getting into offensive motion because our guys were being held and bumped and leaned on every time they tried to move. Early in the second half, the refs made several just mysterious calls. They called a a, a traveling on, on Paulo where he never had, it was just bizarre. And that seemed to frustrate our guys and get us out of rhythm. And again, I'm not blaming the refs, but they allowed Florida State to turn this into a wrestling match on defense. And that's not how basketball is supposed to be played, and it was, it's unfortunate. But Duke needs to find a way to adjust to that and fight through it because there will be other games like that this year.
1: Yeah, absolutely. you got to fight through those or just recognize it and, and learn how to turn it into your advantage. Florida State used that to get over the line 25 times. They made 20 of 25. We were 14 of 18 from the line, which is great. But again, in a game where you're talking about one or two points here and there, one or two moments here and there, one or two plays here and there, those, those trips to the free throw line are exactly why we talk about all year. you got to go force your way to the line and knock down your free throws because those could be the difference between a win and a loss. Yep, and we've
0: talked a lot about what Duke needs to learn from this game. Our first chance to put those lessons into action will be this weekend against Syracuse. A preview of what to expect from Jimmy Bayheim and his boys coming up after the break. We're back, and it's time to look ahead. This weekend, Duke plays Syracuse. We are back in Durham for that contest, and uh, it's the Fighting Beheim's coming to town. It's uh, Jimmy Beheim, his son Buddy, and his other son Jimmy, uh, as well as uh, several other players that you'll be familiar with. Donald, um, tell me, Syracuse is not having the year they expected to have thus far, or have they?
1: No, they haven't. They are they are right now hovering around five hundred for the season, nine and nine. They are three and four in the ACC, currently sitting in ninth place. Again, when we talk about Syracuse, we talk about how they're always on—you know—projected to be in the top half of the conference. They always end up to be hovering right in the middle of the pack, which is exactly where they are right now. I will say they do have a couple of key wins. They—they they have beaten Florida State. They have beaten Indiana, and they did win last night against Clemson. So there's your top 100 Ken Palm wins uh, that they have had. Losses, though, they have. Uh, spread across the board. They have lost to FSU. Again, we talked about this uh, before the FSU game, but they've played Syracuse. Uh, Syracuse and Florida State have played each other twice. So that's a nice kind of barometer for us to kind of look at what research in this team. Uh, but I mean, some losses that they had are very good to Auburn, uh, Villanova, uh, Miami, but they've also lost to teams like Colgate and Georgetown who are not. Uh, they're hovering right around the middle of D1 with regards to uh, Kempom. So I think when it comes to Syracuse, you kind of don't know what you're going to get on a nightly basis. And we'll explain about ways to beat uh, Syracuse, because as we know, they are the the keepers of the uh, matchup zone. And we'll talk about how to break up that zone in just a minute.
0: Yeah, so let me get to the advanced metrics first. Um, Syracuse is number 74 in Ken Palm. Not great, not terrible, but not great. This is the crazy thing. They are 15th on offense. We're talking a top 15 offense in the country. They are 228th on defense. Wow. They are really bad on defense. So let's start with the offense. This is a great three-point shooting team. 38% uh, you know, on threes, 20th best three-point shooting team in the country. They do a really good job holding onto the ball, not committing turnovers. They're you know, not great, but they're fairly good on offensive rebounding um they, they really they play four shooters around one big man and that big man's only job is to try and grab some offensive rebounds um and and this is a team that's just going to shoot a ton of threes on you buddy Bayheim, joe gerrard and cole swider are each going to take more than six three-pointers in this game they average more than six three-pointers a game all three of them they, they bomb away from the perimeter and that's just sort of syracuse's style so now let's talk about the defense like i said 228th on defense. They literally don't do anything good on defense. They're they block. They're okay at blocking shots, but everything else is just horrible on defense. And there are a couple of things that stand out. I was just like, I was like, wait, I had to like double check it. I couldn't believe it. Syracuse is last in the country. Last, 358th at assist percentage. And by that, I mean the number of times a field goal scored against them is assisted. Almost 70% of the time of the field goals scored against Syracuse are off of assists. They're also last at the number, the frequency that teams take three pointers against them. More than 50% of the shots attempted against Syracuse are three pointers. This is a function of them playing that funky matchup zone. The way to beat it is to pass around it and pass through it. And, you know, they, they do a decent job. I mean, opponents hit about 34% of their threes, which, you know, it's okay. It's not a great, but opponents shoot an incredible number of three-pointers against them. And Donald, why don't you, this is the perfect moment. You got to talk about it now. You got to pass to beat this. There's no way to beat this Florida State defense going one-on-one because you're not going one-on-one. You're going one-on-five against the zone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I honestly love when we play our Syracuse because I love the matchup zone because I used to play this in high school, and when employed correctly, it can be very, very frustrating for an offense to go up against that kind of defense. But the problem is Syracuse over the years has not played it as well as they used to back in the heydays of, uh, you know, the eighties and nineties when this was more of a novel thing. Now you'll see, guys. I mean, Duke even plays a matchup zone from time to time, as we saw just just last night against Florida State. But as you mentioned, Jason, there are two things that you can do to get over this matchup zone. The first thing is to shoot over it. And that's what they're wanting you to do. That's why a lot of teams just end up taking half of their shots as three-pointers because that's what the zone is going to allow you to do. Shoot. And if you guys, if you have guys that get hot, like we did in the first half last night against Florida State, if you have guys that get hot, that's going to put pressure on that matchup zone. It's going to stretch them out just a little bit more. That leads to the second way to do it, and that's passing. Passing through angles to find an open lane and find the holes in the defense. There are two, I call them choke points. There are two choke points that are really essential, especially in this 2-3 zone. The first one and the main one is right at the free throw line because that's where you have two guards that are just hovering there waiting for you to pass and go through. Now, if a lot of guys, what they'll do is they'll drive right at that choke point. Make those guys collapse on you, and that allows two guys to be open so then you can find an open passing lane. The second choke point is actually along the baseline. So if you can work the ball away around and get underneath the zone, there's a lot of times where, because if you have three guys that can shoot from beyond the arc, that two-three zone becomes more of a three-two where you'll have one guy from the bottom just kind of glance his way up towards the wing and that opens up something underneath. So if you can get a guy like Wendell Moore or Paulo Bancaro right there in that baseline, about 10 feet from the basket, that opens up a passing lane, it opens up a driving lane, and it opens up a shooting shooting hole. And every single time, if you see Syracuse and when they perform poorly, it's because people find those choke points and exploit them time to time. And it couples with some people getting hot from three-point. You don't have to have the whole team, but just enough where everyone is like, hey, we have to just stretch this defense out just a little bit more because the more you stretch out a zone, the more holes there are to exploit. And they're more the more the choke points kind of fail. So that's what I want to see Duke do a lot of ball movement, a lot of distribution, trying to find the open man on the wing. Obviously knocking down open shots will help, but at a certain time you'll see guys like Wendell Moore, Paula Bancaro, or, or even Jeremy Roach or guys like that from the perimeter drive right at that free throw line because those guys are either going to collapse or you're going to just be knocking down free throws for the entirety of the match.
0: Yeah. So, uh, there are a couple of personnel things about Duke that I want to mention. Not a good time to be missing Trevor Keels. We don't know for sure that he'll be missing. Like I said, we're unsure how how, how long this calf injury will affect him. But if he doesn't play, this feels like the kind of game that would is is ready-made for him in terms of being open on the wing to take three-pointers, uh, which is something that Syracuse gives up to teams. They don't mind giving that up to teams. And, and Keels feels like the kind of guy who could take advantage of that. Um, uh, I, I think A.J. Griffin is going to find, A.J. Griffin loves to shoot that corner three. That's, uh, you know, it's partially a function of, of where he plays on the floor. You're not going to, A.J.'s not going to be up top all that much. Um, but, but that corner three is his shot. And I think he's going to get a lot of them in this game. Uh, Joey Baker is the other guy who likes the corner three. And I think we could see a fair bit of, especially if Trevor Keels is out, we could see a fair bit of Joey Baker um, getting corner threes in this game. The other personnel thing I wanted to mention really quick, Um, we said Paulo almost had a triple double against Florida state. I think there's a possibility that he will have that kind of opportunity again, against Syracuse. I I can almost guarantee you, it does not take a genius to say Duke is going to try to attack the matchup zone by getting the ball to the high post, the free throw line. You talked about that. Anyone who's seen teams play Syracuse. know that's the place you try and get the ball to to begin to cover up the zone. We're going to get it to Paulo there. That's going to be Duke's plan. And he has shown himself, especially lately, to be a heck of a passer. Paul has been putting up big assist numbers in several recent games. His ability to get the ball at that foul line and decide, am I going to take a little foul line jumper? Am I going to maybe put it on the floor and try and attack the guys on the back line? Or am I going to pass to what could be guys open on the wings? Mark, you know, if, if, if James Edwards steps up onto, onto Apollo, there could be someone, you know, Mark Williams could be open down, down in the post. Um, sorry, I said James, I mean Jesse Edwards. Get my, James Edwards played for Detroit, right? <laughs>
1: Buddha, <laughs> <Yeah>. The Buddha.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, is it, Jesse Edwards. Uh, the Syracuse big man steps up on Apollo. Mark Williams will be uh, available down low. I think Duke's whole game is going to come down to what Apollo what is able to do with the ball when we get it to him in the high post. Uh, so, you know, if, if, if Duke goes, if, if Apollo has another game where he goes 10 minutes without getting a, an assist or, or a shot, Duke's going to be in trouble.
1: Yeah, I also think in, in two ways this also help too because you mentioned the triple-double like for him is going to involve rebounds as well. And on the offensive glass, when someone is shooting, it's not like man-to-man where there's a guy who's just going to turn around and put a body on you. They're operating zones. So what that, what that means is whoever is on the other wings or the, or the other corner needs to slash to the basket whenever a shot goes up because they're going to have open range to maybe run at it, not necessarily tip-dunk it, tip-dunk it but at least get that ball and get a second chance at a play. And another, another thing, you were talking about personnel. I'm not saying he's going to play like 10 minutes or anything like that, but would not be surprised to see a little bit more of Bates Jones in this game because, like you mentioned, he is another guy who loves to shoot from the corners, and those corner shots are going to be very, very open if you perform well against the matchup zone.
0: And, and remember, I'm not sure if you recall this, like a month ago, uh, there was a game where Bates Jones played a bit, and I said at that time, I was like, you know what, any any – was able to get the ball at the foul line and be a great passer a great distributor from there and and I said we could you know I don't know how much Bates Jones plays in most games but against Syracuse that could be the game where we see Bates Jones a lot his ability his passing ability is really great from that high post And, and and I'll add a wrinkle to this and then we can wrap it up I think this is a game where Mark Williams doesn't factor a lot and doesn't play a ton it's not Mark's fault But when Syracuse is on offense, look, Mark's, the big thing Mark brings to Duke is that rim protection. Syracuse doesn't attack the rim. That's just not in their game plan. They're working the ball around the perimeter and they're trying to get three-pointers. They're trying to get open jump shots for their jump shooters. They've got four, like I said, they surround Jesse Edwards, who's not making post moves. He's just rebounding. They're surrounding Jesse Edwards with four perimeter players who are not, this is not Florida State and Miami taking the ball to the basket. This is a team that wants to shoot jump shots. And Mark Williams is going to be of limited value against a team like that. I think we could see Mark playing a little bit less and some of those minutes going to Bates Jones. That's a great call.
1: Yeah, and I also think Mark Williams, there is a spot for him on the offense because, again, one of those choke points, as I mentioned, is on that baseline. It's not necessarily his realm of of operation normally, but if he can pull himself out of there, maybe he draws yet another defender closer to him. And just a step one way creates so much space on the other side that someone else can slash in or someone else can shoot over. I think those are really, really interesting things. And I'll I'll be curious to see how he is involved and how they try to get him involved, especially with passovers. And again, Bates Jones, either in the corner at the top of the key, taller guys who are able to pass the ball are going to be a very, very effective tool against Syracuse because passing over zone is going to create so many, so many problems for them.
0: So that's going to wrap it up for us here on this episode of the Duke basketball report podcast. We're sorry, Sam could not join us. He's in mourning uh, because of the Duke loss last night, but, uh, but, Don, but he did yeah.
1: mention, he did mention, uh, we, we forgot to say this during the Florida state recap, but he did want to give a shout out to Leonard Hamilton for wearing a mask. He, he, we, we all, uh, we all support Leonard Hamilton and everything he does, especially last night wearing the mask. And I will say them donating, uh, announcing a donation to the Emily K center, as part of the, the, the Coach K retirement tour, I thought was a, a very, very classy move. Uh, far be it from a Miami alum to show any grace towards Florida State, but I want to give them credit there uh, where credit is due.
0: Yes, we love the ham man. He, he's, he is a, uh, he's a favorite here on the DBR podcast as much as any rival coach can be. Like I said, Absolutely. that's going to wrap it up for us. Uh, he is Donald. I am Jason. We ask you, as always, send us email. Wow, the email box. To say that it has exploded is an understatement email box going crazy these days dbrpodcast at Um, gmail.com we will be back after the syracuse game hopefully trevor keels will be back and uh, we will wrap it up all for you on this weekend until then here's the duke band to play us out and take us home